Hi, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. We wanted to take a second to address what's currently going on because it would be wrong for us to do an episode celebrating Pride without talking about it. Because we only get to celebrate Pride openly because of the hard work of Black men and Black women in the community, and especially Black trans women. And we wanted to take a second to affirm that Black lives matter, Black voices matter, and Black artists matter. As artists, we are constantly consuming art that is made by Black people, but so frequently we are not actively questioning and dismantling the institutions in our community, and especially in the classical community, that, that actively practice discrimination, that are not inclusive in their hiring practices. And we're not just talking about Black artists, we're talking about Black conductors and Black orchestral musicians and black administrators and black directors, black musical directors, we're talking about across the board. And so often we are willing to turn a blind eye to that fact. We wanted to affirm that we're not here just to highlight artists, but also to act, pursue inclusivity across our institution. And we wanted to take a moment to ask you not only to join us in that endeavor, but to hold us accountable to that as we move forward. And as we continue to celebrate Pride throughout June, we will continue to also remember that so much of the reason that we get to openly celebrate is because of the work of Black men and Black women and Black trans men and Black trans women who have been doing the same work that they are currently out there doing, and that our job is to continue to support them and raise up their voices. Moving forward, it's incredibly important to us that we not only express how we feel through our words, but express how we feel and what we wish to see through our action. So Jesse and I have been talking about actionable steps that we can take as an arts platform to create the kind of community that we're hoping to build. We're holding ourselves responsible to moving forward, be incredibly mindful of the guests that we bring on, the topics that we choose to discuss on the podcast, and the partnerships that we will have in the future with brands and companies. We are also holding ourselves responsible to not support companies that do not align with our own mission to create a community of inclusivity. And in addition, we hold ourselves responsible to not back down from addressing the problematic behaviors and values of large institutions such as the Met and addressing the problems within the opera community and art form at large. We also are looking to promote artists and creators that reflect the community that we are trying to build. So we ask that you hold us accountable as we move forward. At the end of this podcast, we'll be highlighting different organizations and charities and different calls to actions that we are taking and that we encourage you to join us in. So as we listen through the podcast, keep an ear out for that at the end. In pursuit of these goals, we wanted to kick off our celebration of pride and music and that community by talking about two very important figures in the reason behind why we get to come out and openly celebrate pride. Specifically, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. You may have seen their names on a lot of posts this week, but we wanted to talk about a couple of the things that these trans women of color specifically did that were incredibly important in lifting up and bringing to light the plight of the LGBTQ plus community. And especially because these two women were performers and we want to celebrate them. Yeah, so together they were very close friends and they worked together on creating a lot of these different foundations and groups, one of them being STAR, which is a group dedicated to helping homeless, young drag queens, gay youth, and trans women. It's also really nice to note that Sylvia Rivera did a lot for the homeless community. 
she is a very interesting figure to read about. She was homeless from a very young age, was on the streets working as a child prostitute before she was brought in by the drag queen community. So you see a lot of her life's work is to kind of give back to that community and also to help the homeless. So reading about her is very, very interesting. I suggest that you do. She was also known for amplifying the voices of the most vulnerable members of the gay community, including gay inmates in prison and jail and transgendered people. And Marsha P. Johnson was also, she was an activist, she was a drag performer, and she was a fixture of Greenwich Village for generations. Most people know her because of of Stonewall, but she was also constantly working on behalf of homeless LGBTQ youth. And she also did incredible work for AIDS advocacy. It's really wonderful to read. The two of them together actually fought for the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act in New York, which basically prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, credit, and the exercise of civil rights. And we see these groups and the work that these women did together that really allow, as Jesse said, for us to openly and proudly celebrate Pride now in 2020. Yeah, so it's just kind of important to us that as we move forward with talking about more modern figures within Pride, that we were paying homage to the ones who really laid down the groundwork that we're building upon. And also to highlight the fact that the history of music and of performance is one of activism and fighting for justice. And this is actually just a quick overview of a couple of the things that they were doing. And we're actually going to link in a blog post further reading that you can do to learn more about their lives and their work. So moving into a kind of more modern era, a person that I was researching about is Manuela Trasobares. She was born in 1962, and she is a transgender woman from Spain who is also a artist, a mezzo-soprano, and a politician which I just think is the real, like, such a cool combination. So when researching her, she studied fine arts. She's specifically painting and sculpture, which she's known for her surrealist influence, which is, to me, really cool. She also specifically studied bel canto, and she's performed at La Scala, uh, Lisión in Barcelona. She's performed in Valencia, so she's a huge figure over there in Spain. And Yeah, I just think that it's really cool that as she's juggling all of this artistic work, which note that you can also find her on Facebook and Twitter, she's quite active, which is really cool. It's interesting to see all of the things that she has accomplished artistically, yet also has this politician side to her. And she's actually the first Spanish transgender town councilor where she lives. So that is a huge accomplishment in its own right. I think when thinking about the context of what she's been able to accomplish, I won't speak for Spain But a large part of my family is from Mexico and lives in Mexico. And I have seen firsthand how horrible it can be to be openly transgender or queer in that community and the violence that they constantly face. And so I just have a lot of respect for what she and so many other people are accomplishing and have accomplished. You know, and you got to admit, mayor, opera singer, sculptor, like that's quite the combo. Like, that's incredible. She's truly a Renaissance woman. And I just feel like it's really cool to read and see her perform. You can easily find performances of her singing on her Facebook. Man, she has got a huge voice. 
she resonates like no other. Yeah, it's really interesting watching her perform. You can easily find her videos um, on her Facebook. And she dresses boldly. She dresses proudly. Her makeup is dramatic. She is always looking just like to the tens. And it's really interesting to hear her sing because, man, what a voice. It's huge. And you can just tell by the energy that she radiates that she is very proud. And I love it. I love to see it. I looked her up and she really is a style icon. Truly. Which, truly, I have to say, if there's anything I pulled away from actually learning about her, it was that I have no excuse for saying I don't have time to practice (laughs) anymore. (laughs) She's out here legislating. She's out here sculpting, singing. I mean, it's incredible. We love a woman that can do it all. Truly. (laughs) The person I chose to highlight is Taya Kasahara, who I originally heard about them from their project, The Queen and Me. They took the Queen of the Night aria and they used the character of the Queen of the Night to tell their story about what it was like to be a musician and a singer in the opera industry as a non-binary and a biracial person. I love that they took something that is such a staple in opera and they used it to explain why opera is not reflecting the people who make up its community. And I thought it was so incredibly cool. And actually that project has since developed into a larger work turned into an entirely new work called Yoru, the Queer of the Night, um, which is currently in development through... Yeah, yeah. Which is currently in development through Amplified Opera, which is also one of their projects. And that's a Toronto independent opera company. That's really cool. I did not know about that. On top of that, they are an active voice teacher. They are the founder of a voice and wellness studio called The Vocal Dojo, which is student-led. It's very much meant to create a healthier environment around singing. I want to go back and talk about Amplified Opera really quick because their mandate is to specifically give stage time to artists who are people of color, who are queer artists, and especially artists with disabilities, which is incredible and so important and is something that every opera company should be saying and should be doing. Yeah. And I love that instead of waiting around for the companies to pick up, they literally started their own company and said, if you won't do it, we will. And that's amazing. That's what I love about new opera and people who also like new opera, because those are the people that are making it happen. You know, unfortunately, our big companies are way too tied up in creating seasons that can guarantee a certain level of cash flow and do not create opportunities for different stories and different experiences to be had and shared. So huge props to basically taking initiative and creating that space. Absolutely. I mean, their projects look incredible. I can't wait to see more of their projects. They are also very active on social media and you should absolutely go follow them. They have a YouTube channel, they have a website, and they have a Instagram They're incredibly active, so definitely go and check them out. You know, and kind of going off of the idea of creating your own opportunities, which obviously we're a huge fan of over at Opera Offstage, but I do have a lot of respect for the people who are taking the time to tell these different stories, reflect people of all walks of life, of all types of experiences. So we definitely wanted to talk and mention a little bit opera that is deeply rooted and about the LGBTQ plus community and their stories. Obviously, we have Lulu from the 1930s, which is recognized for having one of the first openly lesbian characters in opera. 
And we have things like Patience and Sahara, which is pretty much the work considered to be the first mainstream opera that positively depicted LGBTQ relationships, which I want to shout out. Yes, it only took 34 (laughs) years from the first opera with a gay relationship to the first positive one. Yeah, and that's that's an important distinction. We wanted to shout out Fellow Travelers, which you probably have heard, just came out in 2016. It's a work based off of Thomas Mallon. It's based off of a work by Thomas Mallon of the same name. And side note, it's kind of interesting when Thomas Mallon was sitting down to kind of draft thoughts about the character of Timothy, because the characters in this opera and in the book are fictional, but are put into a historical setting because these two main characters, they exist to represent the 1,200 federal employees, men and women, who are confirmed slash suspected to be or suspected to even associate with homosexuals during the McCarthy era and the Lavender Scare. So even though these characters are fictional, when writing the book, Malin, first thing he wrote when drafting Timothy was that he was born exactly 20 years before Malin himself. And he writes about the experience of writing a fictional character and trying to imagine what it would be like to be growing up as this character 20 years earlier from when he was really born. So I think that adds a really cool perspective and sense of realism. Yeah, that's a really interesting personal touch to that character. It's a very human approach to write and honor something like this, you know? Exactly. So it was composed by Gregory Spears. And I remember when I first heard stuff about fellow travelers, I'd never heard of Gregory Spears. And I was interested to know what else he had written or if that was his first opera and it was just ended up being a smash hit. But it's actually Fellow Travelers was his fifth opera. And I believe his sixth is coming out soon. I don't know what that looks like in terms of COVID, but there is a sixth opera. And I just think it's very interesting reading about his experience and taking this work and how to make it historical and how to honor these experiences. And so he is quoted talking about the use of the orchestra in the work. And it's very interesting. He takes note of the kind of coded language that was used by the LGBTQ community in this time to communicate with one another and also as an act of safety. And he takes this idea and puts it in the orchestra and he says, particularly in Jim and Hawk's public interactions, love cannot simply speak its name. Music must bridge the gap. From the starting point, I looked for ways to best express the innuendo-driven world of Hawk and Tim while maintaining a relatively cool musical surface. I tried to do this by blending two disparate styles, American minimalism and the courtly melismatic singing style of the medieval troubadours. And I think with that in mind, when you're listening to it, which you absolutely should, it's easily found on Spotify, you can hear these orchestral moments that have these different motifs. It's very interesting. I love the way you describe how he is portraying the coded language. I think that's really interesting, that that conflict. And my only point of reference is actually a long time ago, I watched a video that was talking where they spoke entirely in Polari, which is the British slang that was used, that same kind of coded language. And it's so interesting because you actually cannot understand what they're saying almost at all. Like you would never have a clue when you look at the translation of it versus what they're saying out loud. And it's such a real part of history. And even now there's coded language and coded things that are used to communicate between groups of people. Not as obvious or obscured as they were, but it's still very much uh, an active part of being a part of those communities. Yeah. So I think the way that he uses it in the orchestra is really 
a beautiful tactic to show, you know, an accurate representation or at least a interpretation artistically of what that was like and is like. Well, yeah, to take that on and to then translate that into music is really interesting and really cool. And I love that he's so clearly able to say what he did, which is the the overlaying of those two kind of disparate styles. I mean, if you haven't already, like I said, it's easily found on Spotify. If you actually want to learn more about it, the Boston Lyric Opera made a really wonderful study guide that has a cool timeline of the LGBTQ history going alongside Cold War history and the history with which the fellow traveler's story takes place. And it's interesting to see how the events line up and crossover. So yeah, if you're interested in learning more Boston Lyric Opera, good job. Yeah, I am super excited actually to talk about about my opera. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to listen to it all yet because it's actually premiering today when this podcast comes out. But I want to talk about Julie, which is an opera put on by New Camarada Opera, and it will be premiering on their YouTube at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But it is the story of Julie Daubigny. Now, the story of Julie Daubigny might be the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm excited. <laughs> she is, yeah, truly, like, I, when I was reading this, it truly broke my brain as I kept seeing thing after thing stack. And I'm like, it can't possibly be crazier than this. <laughs> so to start off, Julie Daubigny, she was born somewhere around 1670, to give you context of the era this is happening in throwback. She was mostly well known as La Maupin, but Julie Daubigny, she was bisexual. She was a crossdresser. She dressed solely in men's clothing and she made her living as an opera singer. Specifically, she was a contralto, which we love. Yo. And she was a skilled swordswoman. She was a swordswoman. She performed as a swordswoman. Uh, she was an opera singer at two separate major opera houses. So that's, that's square one. Okay, that's where we're starting, okay? But she was performing at places like Paris Opera. Like, she was a well-known singer during this time. Now, she elopes with her fencing instructor, okay? Ooh, spicy. And part of the way she makes her money is by doing fencing shows with him. But she actually, in the meantime, impersonated a postulate, which is a new nun, just like Maria from Sound of Music, (laughs) in a convent. Oh. She pretends to be a postulate in a convent, so that she can be with her lover, who is a nun. Wow. Okay, so once again, still at the beginning of this. In order to get her lover out of the convent, she steals a dead nun's body, puts it in her lover's bed, and sets the room on fire so that they can escape. Yikes! <laughs> she was sentenced to death by fire for kidnapping, <gasps> body-snatching, arson, and failing to appear before the tribunal. She wasn't charged as a woman, she was charged as a man, because she wore men's clothing, even though she identified as a woman. Oh, no. But she was personally pardoned by the king of France. That's wild. (laughs) Can you imagine just being pardoned by, I mean, who? What? It is just so incredible to me. Like, first of all, opera singer and swordswoman. (laughs) Honestly, I'm already sold at that point. (laughs) Absolutely great combo. I love it. I love it so much, right? She's got a husband. But she's also got a lover who is a nun. I love it. <laughs> I can't believe that there's no, like, Netflix show about this this woman. I demand a BBC miniseries. <laughs> I really, really do. But she gets out of prison, right? She gets pardoned. And then she turns around and she breaks the law of no public dueling 
by publicly dueling and defeating three different men in Paris who challenged her because she kissed a woman in public. Yo! I love that. Oh my gosh. Just, I love everything about it. She's out here kissing women in public. (laughs) Stealing nuns. Wrecking men who challenge her. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, get you a woman who will break you out of a convent. That's all I'm saying. And just once again stating that this this is historical, correct? Oh yeah. And once again... 1670 is when she was born. So just take into account the time period where this is happening. I love it. But not only that, like, she's La Maupin. Like, she was an incredible singer. They loved her voice. They talk about her artistry, her acting abilities. She was an incredible performer on top of just being a regular everyday badass. (laughs) Oh, my God, goals. I love it. I feel like like Julie would have been friends with Manuela Trasobaris. We love these women who truly just do it all. Oh, yeah. I, I believe, if I've looked this up correctly, once again, the opera ha- comes out tonight. So get on it. Come watch with us. That, that is our watch party this week. But I believe the actual role is a soprano role. Hmm. What I'm saying is I'm coming for it. <laughs> I'm coming for it. Okay, so Jesse, give us, give us the details on where we're watching, how we're watching. We are not using cast this week. We are going to go watch On New Camarada's opera page, which is on YouTube. Uh, and we will put up a link for that. And we will be posting about it. So, But also go follow New Camarada Opera. They are also great. It is an opera film. It is not a live cast of the opera. It's actually a really cool short film, which is another major project that they take on. And actually, I want to say, I'm going to read from their actual thing because, because it is a short film. I don't know how much of her life it's going to cover. Because obviously there's a lot going on there. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) But I wanted to read their description. The film entitled Julie will tell her incredible story, which emphasizes the importance of courage in the face of adversity and the pursuit of equality for all. So it's a very exciting production. I hope you will join us. Once again, it is New Camarada's YouTube page is where it's going to be premiering. 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be watching and we hope you join us. Yeah, just, just the coolest story. Uh, oh, and I should I should actually mention the composer is Whitney George and the librettist is Lila Palmer and the opera is in English. So just to give you a little more background information on the opera itself. Yes. So once again, emphasizing there's no opera offstage watch party this week. You will not find us this Friday because we will be watching some spicy action with new Camarada opera on Thursday. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I I feel like you and I are going to just, just be nerding out so hard. And we hope that you join us as we nerd out about this literally insanely cool badass. I'm so excited. Also, opera film. Like that alone in yeah. its, of itself I'm ar- already piques my interest. And then when you hear about the story, 10 out of 10, so excited. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think it also is so important to to note instead of just filming on stage opera, which I do love because, I mean, that's what we literally do every Friday. But to specifically write something to be film is a different pursuit. And I'm excited to see how it works. I'm excited to see, you know, where we can continue to improve upon it because I think that's an important avenue for the ongoing life of opera. Yeah, I'm excited. So I love that New Camarada Opera is pursuing that and specifically commissioning works for that. Yeah, absolutely. We we stand. (laughs) Now we move into our LGBTQ highlights. <laughs> Keep that in there, please. <laughs> that was the perfect transition. But also we want to take a moment to just do a quick highlight reel of some really cool things that have happened in the past couple years to 
remind us that although the fight is not over, that we are making progress and we are seeing really cool things happen. Yeah, so I just felt like it would be wrong not to shout out, um, and I'm literally smiling right now because I love him so much, but it would be wrong not to shout out Yannick Nézé-Séguin, obviously. He is the Mets' musical conductor. He is also an openly gay man, and his partner is lovely. I loved, um, I think it was like the New York Times or the New Yorker had a whole article about them and their story, and they just seem like such a good fit and such a positive couple. And yeah, anyways, you can literally hear that I'm smiling. I have much love and respect for Yannick. But I think one of the reasons that we love and respect him so much is the fact that he is very openly gay. Because, I mean, when you look at conductors, it remains and has always been an overwhelmingly straight and white male profession. I mean, even to think about the context from which Yannick came from, I mean, before we had these large figures in New York... James Levine and Leonard Bernstein. And it goes without saying that James Levine could not be more problematic. Um, so we're just going to not even talk about him because disgusting. Um, yeah, but aside no- notably canceled. Yeah, we have nothing that we need to say more about him. I mean, you know, even looking at Leonard Bernstein, who was um, absolutely amazing and a huge legacy to follow, his relationship with his family and his sexuality was complicated and you can read his daughter's book famous father girl a memoir of growing up bernstein and read about the issues within his family and so it's just interesting to see these these figures that are so on one hand in james levine's case just bad and other cases of just being complex that we have this new figure who is also young so it's really good to see young conductors come out and be leading the Met. I don't even know if I'm making sense, but I absolutely love Yannick. And I just think that he is one of the best things to happen to the Met. And I just, (sighs) big hard eyes. (laughs) I mean, a a truly incredible conductor. Yeah. And there definitely is something to celebrate in in the ability to be openly out. Yeah. I just ignore me as I fangirl. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Another exciting thing in 2019... Lucia Lucas became the first transgender woman to play the role of Don Giovanni at Tulsa Opera and also the first transgender person to play a principal role at a major opera house in America. And more importantly, she is an incredible baritone. I beg of you to go listen to her sing Don Giovanni because she is absolutely killing it. Her voice is just gorgeous. So go listen to her. Go follow her. She's amazing. I really love that. And when I watched a a video of her performing and then also in an interview, she, side fact, just has a beautiful head of hair. <laughs> like, yeah, she really is hair goals. I mean, beyond all doubt. Truly. And then when it's tied back to be Don Giovanni, it's just, she's glorious. I just, I love it. I mean, Don Giovanni also has to be one of my favorite baritone roles of all time. You know, you you were already going to win me over a little bit just on that fact, but just, just incredible. Yeah, definitely go check out the performances. Another person I really wanted to highlight in 2014, Tona Brown, who is a violinist and mezzo-soprano, became the first black transgender woman to perform at Carnegie Hall. 
She was also the first black transgender woman to perform a sit for a sitting president, Barack Obama. She's very active on social media. She also has a YouTube channel where she covers important things like the harmful ways that media often interviews transgender people. For example, if you wouldn't ask a cisgender person about their genitals, you shouldn't be asking transgender people about their genitals. It feels obvious. It's not that obvious to some people. But more importantly, she, she digs very deep into like other ways in which you can be more inclusive in the way you talk and you interview people. That's definitely something we're looking to do. You should go watch it too. Um, it's, uh, it's under her name, Tona Brown. Perfect. And those are just like a couple of things that are really amazing that are happening in the community. And we wanted to take a second to talk about those people, to urge you to go follow them and look at them. But now we would also like to take a moment to highlight other people within our community who are doing really incredible work. And first up, we wanted to talk about Classically Black Podcast, which is run by Delaney and Katie. They also have an incredible YouTube account. Their podcast talks about what it's like to be black in the music industry, discusses and highlights black excellence in classical music. And they also get piece of the week to listen to every week, which is really great. Their suggestions are always very on point. So please go follow them and listen to them. Their Instagram account is also kicking, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so go check them out. Um, they have really wonderful points, and they should be on your listen list. Another great podcast to listen to is Melanated Moments in Classical Music, which is hosted by opera singer Angela Brown and music sociologist Joshua Thompson. And they are focusing on talking about musical works composed by, for, and about people of color, as well as what it's like to be Black in the industry. So that's another really great podcast to tune into, and that's what we will be doing. Definitely. Yeah. Check them out. A lot of what we talked about today and a lot of the, the people and organizations we've talked about, we are going to put into a blog post on our website, opera-offstage.com. And we will also post links to it on our Facebook and our Instagram, which are at Opera Offstage. So if you want to find these organizations and these people we've been talking about, we will make a master list on that blog post. But included in those groups is... Included in that list will be a couple organizations that you can support as we continue to celebrate Pride to help and support uh, the LGBTQ community. First up is one you may have heard of this week. It is the Black Visions Collective, which is a Black-led, queer and trans-centered organization. They are committed to dismantling systems of oppression and violence and pursuing dignity and equity for all, which is absolutely something we can all get behind. Yeah, no doubt. Another organization that you can support is called the Okra Project. I cried today reading about the work that they do because it touched me so, so much. But the Okra Project is a collective that seeks to address the global crisis faced by Black trans people by bringing home-cooked and healthy and culturally specific meals and resources to Black trans people wherever they can reach them. Basically, this breaks down to the fact that the Okra Project pays for Black trans chefs to go into the homes of Black trans people to cook them a healthy and home-cooked meal at absolutely no cost, which to me is just the most beautiful thing because I think that bonding over food is what... It's just a universally human experience and something that we and all cultures can really get behind. It's a huge part of just being a person is eating food with people that care about you. And they have a lot of different offshoots and subgroups within their organization, such as the Okra Academy. They have an international grocery fund. They have Okra outings, a series, and something that 
definitely <laughs> made me emotional was the fact that they have many connections with the theater community and other artistic spaces. So they provide Black trans people with a completely free opportunity to view performances in some of the renowned off-Broadway houses, and the attendees get to receive a chef-prepared prepackaged meal along with their theater ticket, to which, to me, like helping people through art and food is... I We need a lot more of that in the world, truthfully. And so the Okra Project just stands out to me as an ama- amazing organization to support. Absolutely. And I, it really is the mission statement and the multiple assets within that are just so incredible. So absolutely reach out and support the Okra Project. Yeah. And then another one I wanted to highlight is Glisten. Basically, in 1990, a group of teachers in Massachusetts um, came together to improve the education system that too frequently allows its lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning students to be bullied or discriminated against. Um, And it has since the 1990s become a national organization committed to ensuring safe schools for all LGBTQ students. And I think that this is really important, right? We have to take care of kids. We have to take care of students at all levels. Of course. And so I just, I think teachers coming together to not allow people to be bullied and discriminated against is exactly what we need more of. So they have a lot of different projects that they have as well. So GLSEN, they're spelled G-L-S-E-N. Yeah, love everything about that. The pursuit and protection of education is incredibly important. And the ongoing education of teachers and community leaders and school administrators to make schools safer places is some of the most important work we can be doing. Thank you guys for joining us this week. Keep being loud. Keep talking about what matters. And we will see you guys here next week. Happy Pride. Happy Pride.